Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I suffer from idea block. I suffer from enthusiasm block. I suffer from project block, but I don't suffer from writer's block. Hello, and welcome to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. Yes, that was the voice of Hollywood actor David Duchovny, who you may know from decades on our screens as FBI agent Fox Mulder in The X-Files, the TV show Californication, as well as recent Judd Apatow film The Bubble and last year's Netflix hit The Chair, a campus comedy in which David played himself, taking the mick out of himself. But wait, am I on the wrong podcast, you may be asking yourself? No, this is still a books podcast. It's not often that Hollywood and literary fiction collide in this way, but David Duchovny is in fact now a successful novelist as well as a musician and actor, with four novels under his belt and a new novella, The Reservoir, out this June. Well, it's surely easy for a famous actor to get published, isn't it? Mm, Yes and no. Easy to be published, maybe, but not easy to be an actor and to be well-reviewed in the way that David has been, which we discuss in this interview. One of the reasons why David's role in the chair is so funny, in fact, is that none of the other fictional characters are prepared to believe that that X-Files guy went to Princeton and Yale and is a best-selling novelist, all of which is true. David and I talk about how he originally intended his 2015 debut novel, Holy Cow, to be a film, but it was turned down everywhere he took the idea, how he planned to be a professor in News Holidays to Write. His father was a magazine writer and playwright, so it was a long-held dream of David's to write too. And how his teenage poetry was bad, just like, he says, his early acting skills. Please do enjoy the background noise of Manhattan taxis and the general New York soundscape in this episode. And also, please do excuse my slightly fluctuating accent, which sometimes happens when I interview Americans. I grew up partly in Scotland, and something about talking to Americans brings out those Scottish consonants. It settles down after a while, I promise. 
Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers, and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses, and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style, and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership, by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's hear from David. Of the, of the four novels I've written, I have a novella coming out in June. So that's the first, the novella is the first thing that didn't start in my mind as a screenplay or as a, as a movie that I wanted to shoot and that I wasn't able to get those going for whatever reasons. And I turned to novel writing to tell the story. So it was less not finding success as an actor and more the story is not finding success as an actor. That's, and then I, yeah. That's such an interesting way of putting it that the, yes, putting the onus on the stories to succeed in a different way rather than, um, rather than you personally. When you're trying to make a movie, like all my my ideas until now, they're usually like independent movie ideas. So you're usually trying to raise like a few million dollars and, and, and from people that that money means something too. It's not like a studio spending 40 million or whatever, 50 million. So it's like, it's it, you got to fight for that money and you have to convince them that you're telling a story that's worthwhile. When I wasn't able to do that, I was like, fuck it. I know I have a worthwhile story to watch. I'm going to tell the story the way I would have told it. I mean, obviously it's in a different medium, but it was just my stubbornness or my belief that I had, a, those were stories that I wanted to tell. And I knew, I knew how to tell them that they kept me going, you know, past the point of that initial rejection. Yes. And I know that you started off with your, your debut novel, Holy Cow. You did actually take around Hollywood as a script or a, a treatment to begin with. Yep. I want to get onto that in, in a little bit, but I just wanted to just kick off a little bit with The Chair. Now, this is a literary podcast and we are here to talk about your books, but I wanted to just mention this absolutely brilliant Netflix show, which is just so funny, which you appeared on earlier this year, because it is relevant to, to the writing. Yep. So in it, you play yourself being taken not very seriously by the academic establishment at this fictional yep. liberal arts college. And they don't really believe that you nearly got your PhD, that you wrote a dissertation on Beckett, that, you know, yeah. that you're a best-selling author. They sort of, they sort of laugh at that and, and, um, mm -hmm. and you kind of play up to it in a way. You're signing up to that. Did you have any qualms about mocking yourself like that? Because, I mean, God knows it must be hard enough already being taken seriously as a literary novelist when you are a famous actor. 
I've been mocking myself my entire life. So that, <laughs> that's, just, that's just second nature to me. My father said I was the only only two year old he ever met who had a sense of irony. So I think I think at, at some at some point that's my destiny. But uh, I guess that's the second time I played myself. You know, I do when I do I go on talk shows. I mean, I'm just like this weird version of what people might expect. And that way I get to keep myself private, which is fine by me. I don't really care that people might think that the, the, the person that I'm playing is me because I, you know, obviously I know, I know, I know the difference. So, and the people I love know the difference. So this one came about was just, I'd done a play with Amanda. Amanda was Amanda Pete who ran the show, created the show. She was actually in the second X-Files movie. So I've known Amanda for probably over a decade mm. and she just called out of the blue. I didn't even know she was doing a show. And she said, would you, would you, would you be in this, would you be in this as yourself? And she sent me the script. And at first I thought it would be funnier if I wasn't myself. And I talked to her about that. And she was convinced that it'd be funnier if I was myself. So we, we kind of went with that. Well, you play yourself very well, funnily enough. <laughs> um, okay. So obviously that's set in college and they, they mention you know, your dissertation yeah. and, and um, the fact that you studied under the esteemed literary critic Harold Bloom and so on and so forth. When you were actually at Princeton and Yale, were you thinking of being a writer at all? I mean, I've read some things that said you were considering being a professor, actually. I mean, you were an English major and I presume that that's what you were thinking you might study and teach. Yeah, I mean, if graduate school is a trade school, it's it's a trade school for professors, right? So that's, I mean, my my hazy plan was that I was going to get the PhD, I was going to get a tenure track position somewhere teaching, and that I would use the generous vacation times of professors, uh, at least four months off a year, to uh, to write my own stuff. So that was kind of that was just the, the outline of the plan. Yeah. Okay. So you were thinking at that point that 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 academic career would go alongside a career as a as a novelist. Yeah, I mean that would be my you know I'd have a day job and a night job. You know that was kind of the the idea. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and had yeah. you been a bookish kid? Were you were you reading a lot and were you writing a lot as a kid? I mean, I was bookish to an extent because my father and both both my parents were uh, very strong readers uh, and, and and put a lot of store by their kids reading and, you know, not watching TV and that kind of shit that all parents say. But my parents were, you know, my dad was a writer, said he was a writer at that point, was a writer. And my mom was probably the first person, let alone first woman in her family to go to college. So, so, so these were these were people that really esteemed the written word. But I, you know, I was more of an athlete. I, I, I just, I just moved my mom from one place to another while I'm in New York now. And there, she keeps everything. And, and, and I had these little composition books. I guess I was told to keep a diary when I was 12. And I was just reading it uh, the last couple of days. And, and uh, no mention of reading. <laughs> There's no mention of reading in any of it. <laughs> Although That's I, it. I did see, I saw, I went to, with my dad to see... Uh, the Charlie Chaplin movie and the French Connection, apparently, in uh, March of '72. Uh, right. So there's some there's some good New York culture in there. But I guess you were writing, though. I mean, even if you weren't reading in that journal, you were in fact writing it. So um, yeah, I wrote and- like in high school. I wrote poetry. In college, I wrote some poetry. 
And actually, uh, weirdly, a friend of mine who wasn't a friend of Princeton, a guy named Walter Kern, who's a terrific writer, and he he showed up and started slinging his poems around campus. And that's when I decided I was not a poet, not like <laughs> Walter. I thought Walter was a terrific poet. Well, I, I was going to ask if your, yes, if your, if your teenage poetry was any good, because I suppose in many ways, young poetry is, is sort of like the writing gateway drug, but it is often not very good. No, it's, it's usually not very good. And mine is certainly not very good, but I have read again. I just have been reading a few of them and the writing is pretty bad. The thinking is, is not so bad. There's not, there's some decent emotional thinking going on. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> distinction actually. Okay. Yeah. So, so then at, at university, I think you dabbled in a novel that that you've previously said a publisher liked. I mean, tell me tell me a little bit about that. What, what does dabbling in a novel mean? Did you did you write a full manuscript? Yeah, I suppose I did, but I was kind of under the influence of too much. Of, and and again, it's very weird to be talking about this now. But I just grabbed Crying Lot Forty Nine to take with me for lunch, and I was reading it over lunch, and I was very much under the influence of you know, modernists or postmodernists, I don't know what to call them anymore, but, um, you know, people for whom plot was not very important. You know, the people mm -hmm. for whom the engine of the novel was the subject of the novel and not yeah. to hold a mirror up to life or to, you know, tell a good story plot-wise. So, and I think my writing suffered from that, a kind of navel-gazing, inward-spiraling type linguistic games. and. Um, but, you know, on the surface, uh, you know, nothing really happened in my novel. It was basically my life at the time I was bartending. I was just like this bartender in New York, you know, a little bright lights, big city, because that had been a huge hit. Um, you know, some drug use and sex and stuff like that. And, you know, just not that good. <laughs> Did it have a name? Wherever there are two. Okay. Okay. And so... A publisher, you found a publisher who liked this book? No, I didn't, I didn't send it to a publisher. I sent it to a very well-known playwright who was a friend of a, a girlfriend's mother. I won't say his name. He said in the note that he wrote, which was very generous, that he read it and wrote back that I was a good writer and that I would have a terrific first novel in six years. So <laughs> I, made a, I made a note to, uh, to send him the same novel in six years, which I never did. Okay. Say, okay. There you go. <laughs> and and did you feel uplifted by that message, or did you feel annoyed that because you know when you've just finished a novel, it's hard to see whether it might not be good enough to publish. Did did you feel that that was a, a kind of endorsement, or did you feel no. like no, I want to publish this, so that's not good enough? I didn't know what to do after that to try and publish it. I I didn't. I don't really know. I know I felt. I felt uh, rejected because I think when you're young, and so I was probably, I was probably right after college. So I was probably like 22. You know, you want to believe that you can be seen throughout, through any kind of whatever your stylistic weaknesses or your formal weaknesses might be. You want to be seen, you know, as special or as having a voice, you know, and that, uh, I guess I shouldn't say you. I mean, I'm just, I, I thought somebody's going to recognize me, you know, recognize me, recognize me and nurture me and, and tell me, tell me to keep going, you know, tell me, tell me I'm worthwhile, 
you know, it's really what any artist needs in the beginning, you know, and I know we haven't talked about acting, but I'll just bring it up for a second, which is, you know, when I think back, like sometimes like X-Files happened fairly early in my working career. And I've been going like from movie to movie before that, maybe I'd done like five, but not that many differing size of roles. But X-Files was like every day, every day I had to work, had to act many hours a day. And then, um, you know, I thought that I was really good. I thought that I was special. I thought that I had a voice. And And you were, you were really good. (laughs) No, no. But now I look back, I look back like the first two or three years at my work and I, it's not good. And that's okay. We don't have to sit here and argue about it. I'm not, and I'm not being, I'm not humble bragging at all. I, I'm telling you the God's honest truth when I say not great. And I just thank God that I had the false confidence that I was doing some great work, you know, and it's, you know, you talk about being rejected. It's, it's so precarious. You know, it's so easy to destroy a young belief, you know, and I guess I'm just lucky that, at least in terms of acting, when I look at it, I'm lucky. I'm sure some people say you suck, but I, but I'm lucky that you know <laughs> predominantly I got to be in a little bubble where I really felt I was doing my thing, and then I then I got to be good enough where I go, oh my god, mm. now I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like it's not that. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think that's right for so many people is that you need a bit of time to really get into your groove. But sometimes artistic industries are not that great at giving people that time because, you know, right. time is money and so on and so forth. So I'm sure that's right. But yes, I mean, so you so you left college and you became an actor, a very successful actor. And, and uh, you did your movies and X-Files ran for nine years, not including the additional series right. a wee while ago and the movies and so on and so forth. But then a few years ago, something changed and you've now published four novels in just six years, I think. I mean, that's not even to mention the couple of music albums you've also brought out. It's yeah. a phenomenal achievement, really. Let's let's go back to how that first novel holy cow your debut came about so you were saying earlier that you originally tried to sell it as a film script and that's how you'd envisaged it and in fact I didn't didn't ever write it as a film script it was it was just a pitch it was a pitch okay so so what does that look like you had this idea you had this pitch you took it to meetings and what happened I only remember one. I'm sure. I'm sure I had three or four. I mean, there aren't many places. I knew. I, I knew it was an animated film, so there aren't many places you can pitch it. Also, you're pitching an animated film. You're going in and you're basically saying, "I'm going to ask you to spend 150 million dollars on this idea." You know, yeah. that's like animated films. At least then, they were expensive. They are expensive. Yeah. So the companies that make them are going to look for hugely broadly appealing ideas. You know, Toy Story you know, that hits everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think mine was that. Mine was like too kind of tongue-in-cheek politically aware, you know, there's a pig, a pig gets circumcised. You know, in the middle of the pitch, <laughs> I realized, yeah, probably not. They're not going to give me $150 million to make this movie. <laughs> I should say but, here for, I should say here briefly for listeners, you haven't read Holy Cow, um, a little bit about what it's about, actually. Well, so, I'll say, I'll tell you what the pitch yes, was. Yes, you, you tell us. Yes, go the, ahead. The, the pitch, I mean, I, it was probably longer than this, but I, 
I, I said, I was driving my car and I just, the thought occurred to me that if I was a cow, I would probably try to get to India. That would be the best move that I could make <laughs> because they're sacred there. And, you know, they're, they're treated as gods, not eaten. So I was like, that's a funny thought. I'm glad I had it. And then I, I just stayed with it and it's like, well, if I were a pig, I'd probably try to get to Israel and take advantage of kosher laws there where I wouldn't get eaten. <laughs> and then what other animals might, then a turkey might might think that Turkey, the country, was named after him. And therefore, if he got there, he'd be treated as some kind of a, a visiting god or something. So, yeah. so I had my three heroes and I thought, well, this is a road movie. This is an escape movie. Let's make an animated film about that, you know, basically. Yeah. And I didn't, I never worked out the particulars of it, but I just wanted to say, if you buy the setup, I can go try to write it or we can get somebody else to write it. I didn't know if I could, I would even write it. Yeah. And at that point, did you know what the tone was going to be? Because one thing I would say about Holy Cow is it's just quite, I can't, I'm thinking about it as what it would be like if it was an animated film, which are often this, you know, they are technically often for children w- with a kind of knowing tone yeah. for, for many adults who might also watch it. That's the kind of, for example, yeah. the Pixar way. But but yeah. Holy Cow, I would say it's quite an adult book. Um, it has, I mean, it has these very, um, very kind of strong themes of these anthropomorphized animals. Yeah. And, you know, they, they have these really, really traumatizing moments. I mean, Elsie Bovary, the, protect, the cow protagonist has this moment where she realizes that humans are killing and eating her kind on this farm yeah. where she's always been, you know, until then blissfully happy. And it's also, it's not actually um, didactic. It's actually very entertaining as well as thought provoking. And it has these kind of these sort of funny dialogue where cows call each other yeah. cray cray and my bae right. and this funny stuff. When you were pitching it as a film idea, did you see that kind of, disconnect between like the kind of adults and the children's perspective on this story because I'm wondering what it was that were the producers or whoever it was you were having the meetings with said to you when you when you pitched them in this idea because that's the first thing that springs to my mind that it's it's not a children's story no um I don't know I don't remember so well but I, I will tell you that I think since then we've seen the advent of at least on television of cartoons for adults you know that's not uh, still the big movies are still because they're so expensive they're going to be aimed as broadly as possible but you know now now we have adults legitimately sitting at home at night watching cartoons that are aimed at them sometimes so i think it can live in that world as well i think ultimately an idea that that advocates uh any kind of vegetarianism is not going to get made by a big conglomerate studio. It's like, it's too alienating a thought to. Yeah. That's interesting. To its audience. So when they, when they said no, which it doesn't sound. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like that surprised you that much, but so they said no. And then. Fantasy that somebody would say, that see me, somebody would see me (laughs) and they'd see that I was a storyteller and they'd go. You know what? Maybe, 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 but no, that didn't happen. And so tell us what did happen. Because obviously now it is a novel. How did that come about? Well, I just shelved it. You know, I was doing other things and I just put it away as, you know, one of those ideas that didn't make it. And um, then, you know, maybe, I don't know how many years later, like 2014 or 2015, that was probably in 2004, 2005 when I had the idea. Then maybe 10 years later, I think it was in the wintertime and I was, I was in this house that I'm in now, this apartment and I was with my kids and they were going to school and I was doing Californication for the most part, which was really only like a three and a half month job a year. So I had a lot of time and I was happy to be with my kids, but I had my days free and I was like, well, you know, maybe you should write finally, you know, just, you've been saying you're a writer, very much like my dad I've been saying I was a writer my whole life and yet. I've written one movie and a few episodes of television, but you haven't written a novel. Just just write one of those ideas that you have. And I was like, okay, which one? And I, I had the, you know, I had four or five, and, and I just thought, well, holy cow, it's kind of it's inoffensive in a way. Like I, I it won't seem that I'm taking myself so seriously, mm. even though even though I do. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, it's like. I'm not dropping the, the great American novel the first time out. I'm not trying to, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not writing a thinly veiled Romana Clef or a thinly veiled memoir, Hollywood story or something. You know, it's probably the furthest away that I could get from any kind of public perception of myself. So I thought, who's going to attack? What kind of asshole is going to attack a guy that writes about cows, and pigs and turkeys, you know? <laughs> it's so interesting because so many people with their first novel write something vaguely autobiographical and in fact you went out of your way to do the opposite because I think people would be interested in my autobiography and I didn't want to trade on it it's hard enough like when I write songs you know people try to connect the dots and I, I write them so that you can't really I mean that's not you know it's mm. not interesting to me to play that kind of puzzle game do you think that the idea benefited from that, I think you said, 10-year gestation? Did it, did it grow or change? Well, I hadn't been working on it, so it didn't, it didn't grow on its own. But I think, I think it benefited mostly from the fact that I, I knew I was writing it as a novel and not a screenplay. So that <clears throat> gave me a certain kind of a, a latitude, you know, it gave me a certain kind of freedom and room to move around linguistically that I wouldn't be able to do if I was trying to write a broad, broadly appealing Hollywood uh, Pixar type movie. So I could, I could throw away allusions to Led Zeppelin or shit like that. That just amused me. And, you know, 
it, it just gave me like anything goes type of feeling. Like I'll just, I'm just going to relax and just see how I write. Basically, I was just watching myself write. And, and did it feel, I mean, you were 55 when Holy Cow was published. So I guess this is a few years before. But I mean, you'd spent, you know, it had been a few decades since college when you'd written that novel that was in a drawer somewhere, I guess. Did you feel yeah. afraid to kind of finally try again with this ambition you'd harbored for so long? I mean, did you suffer from any self-doubt or was it all just fun from when you sat down at the computer? It's funny to say, and it, I, I don't know how to say it without appearing ridiculous, but I didn't have self-doubt about that. I, I have self-doubt about it, most everything. I, I have self-doubt about acting, about what else do I have? Music, certainly, my voice, things like that. But I, I've never, I don't have self-doubt about the way I write. I just don't. <laughs> I know that sounds awful. It doesn't. I mean, I, I've heard people say that on the podcast before, and some people really do, and some people don't. And I just think it's really interesting to see how people tackle it differently. I wonder if you know why that might be. That's not to say that I, I think that I am fantastic. That's just to say that <laughs> something happens when I write that that's a, that's a complete connection. Like, it goes from me onto the page if it's going well. I, I'm doing what I want to to do I can see it you know it's like it's not it's not I, it's not a miss to me it may be a miss to somebody reading it but there's something there that I so enjoy playing around with and um, up until now it's always been that way when I sat down right even from uh, I don't know how else to put it it's really just a joy uh, I know writing writing is very difficult and very painful and it, it sucks and all that stuff that people say it's true but it's just a complete connection for me you know, the words, and, and if I have the story, you know, I don't write all the time. I only write when I have a story. So if I have a story I believe in and I'm, I'm, I'm in the right tone, then I, I, I can write. I wonder if it's something to do with the autonomy that writing grants you compared with, say, the collaboration of a film set or, or band. Well, certainly, certainly there's that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about getting to write after all that time was, uh, you know, I do have an editor, but it's pretty much just me for the longest time. Mm. And then, you know, then I put it out there and I get notes and I give it to my close readers or whatever. But I think it was also the fact that I had done so much work um, as a student that I had read so much and that I had such a, such a store of great writing in my head and a refined taste of my own to what I think is great so that when I read it, I recognize it, not, not in myself, but in others. And I can't be persuaded one way or the other. You know, you show me something, I read it, I will tell you if I like it or not. And I trust that. And you, do, and you can't argue me out of it or into it. It's like music. It's like, how are you going to argue somebody into liking a song? They either do or they don't. That's me with writing and reading. I, I've read people who get frustrated with the fact that I seem to uh, allude a lot to other books that came before, other authors, other poets, novels, stuff like that. But to me, that's that's respect, and 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 it's like I I I love doing that because it's like the road is paved. I'm just going to take it somewhere else, you know. But 
um, I'm not showing off. I swear to God, I'm not showing off. <laughs> and I swear to God, I'm not, I'm not looking for this stuff either. It's all in here. So I feel like it's cheating if I went to like, oh, I need like a Shakespeare quote here. And I go to Shakespeare and I look around. Like to me, that's cheating. But it's like if it comes to my mind and it's in there and I can actually quote it a little bit, then I will use it. Yeah, one of the things I really like about Holy Cow is that it's filled with these cultural references, which, of course, you wouldn't expect a cow to have. So that's part of the fun. But I think it's very joyously done. I think it feels like you had a lot of fun writing it. And that's always fun for the reader to sense that. Hello, Writerish podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone podcast network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. So you wrote Holy Cow. How long did it take you, by the way? I don't remember, but not that long. It's not a very long book. It's barely a novel, but it, you know, it masquerades as one. <laughs> and, and then you got an agent. I mean, how does one get an agent when one is a famous actor, presumably a little differently than, than someone else? But yeah. I wonder if it feels like there's a bit of a different sort of pressure. Well, I probably could have gotten an agent before writing, you know, sure. but that, that's neither here nor there. I, I ended up with a guy named Andrew Blanner, who I went to school with, I went to high school with him, and he was my father's agent. So he actually right. called me after Holy Cow came out, and he was like, well, you should have an agent. I was like, really? What do I need an agent for? I just write, and I sent it to my editor, and we published it. And he said, no. You. Okay, so Holy Cow came out without you having an agent. Okay. Yeah. So, so you sent that off to publishers? Yeah, well, I, a friend of mine named Eleanor Chai who's a terrific poet, C-H-A-I. She's friends with Jonathan Galassi at Farstrauss Giraud. And she has been on me for years to write. Years, way longer than I've been writing. So when I finally did write Holy Cow, I sent it to her. And she said, I, 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 need, I want to send it to uh, Jonathan Galassi, you know, who's like, I didn't know, because I, I don't know that world, but he's like, people would kill to have him as their editor and publisher and I was like yeah sure send it to <laughs> I was so lucky to have Eleanor funnel me his way and Jonathan and I have worked on on the four novels together and so at that point did it all start to feel really real um I mean publishing is so different from writing isn't it that's a different beast and and writing is there's a lot of solitude, as we talked about earlier. There's a lot of autonomy. And suddenly you're getting published. What did that feel like? And after so long of wanting it as well. I wouldn't say that I'd wanted to be published for so long, but I wanted to, tr to try to write a novel for so long. I'll tell you, the, the day when they sent me the, the, uh, the galleys or uh, the promotional copy, whatever it's called, it, it looks yeah. like the book. Here, we, here we call it a proof. Yeah, they sent me the proof. 
uh, I think I cried because I was like, wow, I, it's like it just, you know, to have something weight, of weight in your hand and, you know, of substance, a thing in the world. It was, it was a real set. It's like, I, it was like I built a house, but with my own hands, you know, mm-hmm. that's the way I felt. Like my house came in the mail and there it was. And I was like, oh my God, like, nah, I don't give myself many moments like this, but I was like, yeah, good for you, David. You, you, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. No, well, I mean, of course, well-deserved. And I, I think the thing about, about publishing a book, it just is that, then it's going to reach readers. And even though the fun is talking to yourself, talking to your computer, you want that connection, right? That connection with other people too. Yeah. Yeah. You want to entertain them. You want to tell them a story. You want to illuminate certain things, you know, you want to start a conversation, you know, uh, reading. I thought about this since becoming a writer. I didn't think about it before, but reading is, is such an odd activity that we do. And it's, it really makes one human in many ways. But what you're doing is you are allowing somebody else's voice to take over the voice in your head. You know, as you read, you are actually allowing yourself to be possessed by another person's spirit through their words. And it's a very intimate thing when you think about it. Mm. I didn't think about it that way until after. <laughs> but I was like, and then I'd be reading, but like, wow, this is such an odd thing that somebody else, you know, labored over these words and now I'm just. I'm allowing them inside me. Yeah, I think it is exactly like that. It's a really good way of putting it. I mean, when I had um, really bad insomnia after my son was born, and I've always been a reader, but I got super into reading at night um, when that happened. Because I think, you know, the whole thing with insomnia is that the voice in your head won't shut up. And if you let somebody else do it, you know, take over, then you can fall asleep at last, or at least that's what I found. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So when your original idea for Holy Cow was rejected as a screenplay, you adapted it, transformed it into something, I mean, over time, you kind of found a new way for it to live. Do you think that's good advice for writers or wannabe writers, you know, to find a way to make this work, not necessarily changing formats, but, you know, rethinking a a story that you might have. Or do you think sometimes we have to abandon stuff too? I mean, if you're going to abandon stuff, that means you've got tons of ideas, you know, and I don't know. We don't have tons of ideas, us people, really. We have a few, we have five, we have seven. I don't know. So it's hard for me to throw one away because I'm like, ah, well, I have six. So it comes down to to that that confidence of fuck. I know there's a story here. This is a story. I mean that that's all it is ever. Even if it's a postmodern novel that has no plot, there's a story that you're telling. Maybe it's the story of the novel or the story of consciousness or what, what God knows what you know those novels are about. But you have to have that confidence. And if somebody says, if somebody you know blocks your path, you know. Yeah, maybe you can think about repurposing it. Maybe it's a play. Maybe it's serialized. It's a short story. I don't know. But if you really think it's a story, then I think it's incumbent upon you to tell it in a way so everybody sees it's a story. Mm. Your books are all quite different from one another, I think. 
they have quite different tones. They certainly have different stories. I mean, we've, we've talked about Holy Cow, but you've also written a kind of romance, your latest Truly Like Lightning, which is, I think being turned into a TV show that you're going to star in, right? Yeah. And congratulations. Um, but, but Truly Like Lightning is a sort of Tom Wolfesque tale that tackles some really like weighty themes of faith and its limitations and Mormonism and so on. Do you feel like you've been working out your identity as a writer? Or do you just like different things each time you sit down to write? I like different things. I, I think I, I think I, have my, I guess I think of myself as a storytelling writer. And if I have a story that I want to tell that I think is legitimate and could sustain a novel, the type of story that it is is going to, it's going to give me a certain kind of tone that I think I need to reach for. And that's going to, in turn, um, influence the, the kind of writing that I'm going to do. So I, I don't think of myself as having a, I, I guess I do have a style, but I don't, I, I feel like I can go light and dark, whatever. I guess truly like lightning is probably all the styles put together for me. Like that was just the biggest attempt that I've made. Um, but I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what the style is. Um, I'm told I have a lot of run-on sentences. I guess that's my style. <laughs> um, people, in- people are very offended, very, very offended by illusions and and long sentences. People don't like them, but I'm going to continue to do it. <laughs> well, it's working well for you, I think. Um, <laughs> in your show, Californication. Um, which ran from 2007 to 2014, you play a novelist, Hank Moody, who suffers from writer's block. Maybe you feel you've already answered this question, but do you ever suffer from writer's block? It sounds like no. I suffer from idea block. I suffer from enthusiasm block. I suffer from project block, but I don't suffer from writer's block. When, when I have a project, when I if you told me, okay, just kidnapped your dog and going to kill it unless you give me a novel in three months. I would give you a novel in three months, but because you're not doing that, I might not give you a novel in three months. So I, I need to, I need to focus and, and, and have an idea that excites me enough to, it's not just like the whole idea, just the premise excites me so that I can then, do the hard work of writing to figure out what the story really is. So, I mean, I have one right now and I've, I've noodled around with starting it for the longest time and I, I just haven't. So maybe that means that the idea isn't right or maybe it just means I'm not right. I don't know. But mm-hmm. no, I never, once I start writing, I, I can write. And so when you're in that, when you're kind of noodling around, do you just wait to feel that that idea um, has legs? Or do you, do you just sort of wait for that realization to come to you? Or is there anything you do to kind of? No, I wait till I am so kind of unhappy with myself for not trying to execute it that I, <laughs> that I, I just, I write that first paragraph, which is the deadly first paragraph. It's like, oh, that's how this is going to begin. Or, oh, this is, this has a decent beginning or whatever, you know, and then hopefully then I'll be off to the races, but. I can't think abstract like that. I can't get very far just sitting. I think way better with my hands. I, I, mm-hmm. I think 
I, I think as a writer, I don't really think as a person quite so much. Mm. So when you were an actor and not, I mean, you are still an actor, sorry, but when you were primarily an actor and, and not really writing, do you, do you think that you kind of intrinsically felt that there was something missing, that there was a creative outlet that you weren't utilizing? Because I think a lot of writers, when they come to it a wee bit later, I certainly had this feeling that, okay, now this is a part of my brain that wanted to be used and wasn't being. Um, maybe there was some of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't really burning at me or burning me up in any way. Part, part, of, my, part of my impetus for, for writing was, I think as, a, as an actor, as a famous actor, you, you run into many conceptions of yourself, you know, that people have. And I just thought I didn't want to leave the planet without getting what's inside my head on paper so that people really could tell what I was like, even for my kids. You know, a lot of it was like when my kids read these books, if they ever read these books, they're going to know their father in, in a way that they could not have known me or, or read about me or anything. You know, that it was really the most intimate, honest portrait even if I'm writing about cows and turkeys and pigs, it's me. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's my brain. That's my soul. Um, that's what I'm here to do. You know, we're all just here to notice stuff. <laughs> we're just <laughs> passing through. We're just yeah. saying, hey, look at that. I want to like, that, that reminds me of something else. And that reminds me of something else. And, that, and it's, I'm just trying to put it together, you know, and I'm trying to find stories that, that, can carry the weight of a worldview, mm. world, world making, really. It's a lovely thought about your children, I think. Um, what advice would you give people who are doing something else, who want to be writers? Well, I, I would give them the, the advice that I, that I don't take as, as much as I should, which is like, just you have to write. And, and it's what I tell people who ask me about acting as well, like, get into class, whatever, always be acting, act, go act. Nobody's stopping you. You know, nobody's stopping you from writing. They might stop you from publishing. That's sad, but you know, you know, you know that you wrote and, and you, you always have that. You know, I think, I, I don't know. It's so hard to find the time though. If you have a proper work a day job, if you're working sure. nine to five, not everybody's like Trollope and his mom, you know? Sure. Trollope wrote how Trollope would like he wrote from five to nine. He had a and then he'd go to work and he'd go to sleep and he'd wake up at five and he'd write to nine. And if he finished one novel between five and nine, he'd just start another one. <laughs> That's terrifying. And I'm not sure that people listening to this podcast want to be reminded of that level of industriousness. <laughs> his mother wrote more novels than he did. His mother wrote even more novels than him. So it was some kind of pathological need in that family to write. Yes. Um, do you have any advice for people about how to pick themselves up after rejection? And there are so many forms of rejection, but even like that, you know, very nice uh, message from your from the playwright when you were 22 you know, when, you, when you're burning to kind of get going and people don't give you the, the full green light, how, how can you kind of carry on and, and, and believe in yourself when no one else really has yet enough? I think, I think it's, it's something that I learned as an athlete. It's, you, you have to have a short memory. 
you know, uh, you know, you, 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 you read a lot about people that, that, that burn with resentment and revenge, you know, and I'll show that fucking guy who rejected me. And I was never like that. I, I you know, I, I see that, I guess it works for some people that never worked for me, like resentment and revenge. And when I read something bad about myself or a bad review, I feel like I'll never forget it, but I do. And I have, and um, I can't, you know, I can, I'm now remembering a couple, but they don't hurt as bad as they did back then. You know, so you just got to have a short memory and, you know, keep on swinging in a way, you know, as silly as that sounds. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books and my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.